Oh, Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we are privileged to come into your presence in the name of your Son, Jesus, who is our advocate, who stands beside us, and who loves us, and who has freed us by his blood from our sins, and who has made us, by his grace, into a kingdom and priests. Thank you so much for changing us and loving us. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. So that we can gather here today and say, To you and declare and proclaim how great, how great the love that the Father has showered onto us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. And what we want most, Lord Jesus, is for your love to drive everything that happens in this church community. We want your love to be in the driver's seat in every small group, every serving group, every caring group, every learning group, every doing group, every worship group. We want your love to take the day. And now we want your love to just saturate us and immerse us as we open your word your word of life and your word of love to feed our souls. And again, I ask God, help me get out of the way so that what you want said gets said to the glory of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. John Ortberg is a pastor um, and um, he's written some excellent books. Um, one of them is called, If You Want to Walk on Water, You Gotta Get Out of the Boat. <laughs> um, another one is called, um, When the Game is Over, It All Goes Back in the Box. <laughs> so, a, a really, really fine pastor and a, a great author. And... Um, his training, though, actually, education-wise, is uh, not uh, primarily from seminary. It's in the field of clinical psychology. And uh, he wrote um, quite an article. I want to share a portion of that with you. Psychologists have found an intriguing way to study what it is that we really like and dislike. It's called effective priming. Effective priming. Some of you are familiar with that term, especially if you've studied psychology. Effective priming. What happens is, is they print a word uh, over a bouncing dot on a computer screen, and if people's response is positive, they push any key with their left hand. If it's negative, any key with their right. Then Ortberg writes that uh, to discover our deeper responses, 
these researchers will use subliminal stimulation. That is, they'll print a negative word, a word like fear or storm, subliminally, below your level of awareness. And your intuitive system is so fast that it reads those words in response to them before you're aware. And so if they show a negative word subliminally and then a positive word slowly, it just takes you longer to move toward a positive response. Ortberg says sometimes they will flash a uh, sometimes they'll flash not a subliminal word, but a subliminal picture. They'll flash a subliminal picture instead of a word. And then what Ortberg writes, what he writes next is pretty startling. They'll flash a subliminal picture instead of a word. And when it is a picture of an African-American, quote, Americans of all ages, classes, and political affiliations react with a flash of negativity, unquote including people who report they have no prejudice at all. Ortberg wrote, I thought about these, thought about this effective priming, I thought about this research, and, and then I watched a nation respond to the presidential election results. I wondered what my grandfather would have thought about a man who could not have spent the night in his town now governing his country. And then Ortberg wrote, quite apart from party preference or position on any number of political issues, I cannot imagine living through that moment without hoping that there might be healing for wounds that go deep and raw. And then Ortberg wrote, I thought about what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Ephesians when he wrote about the dividing wall of hostility, how Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and his resurrection that raises all of us from spiritual death to life by grace through faith, that that dividing wall of hostility that separated the us group from the, from the them group that wall came down in Jesus. And then Ortberg wrote this. He said, I thought of how when God sits in front of his computer, whatever face gets flashed on a screen, the only button he pushes is marked love. 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 He sees a face, any face, and he just pushes the button. Love. 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 It's that love that is the fuel for our church family. It's that we, we live or we die depending on whether or not we have that love. And that love is the reason why we gather. And that love is the reason why we're healthy. And that is the love that I want us to talk about today as we look to chapter 2 of the book of Revelation. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, the very last book of the New Testament. The Apostle John is 
in exile on the island of Patmos because of the gospel. He's been proclaiming Christ and he has been exiled because of the gospel. And on the Lord's day, the day of worship, the day when the churches that he couldn't get to were also worshiping, he's worshiping, and he has this vision of the glorified Christ. And the apostle John learns that although he is in exile, Jesus is not in exile. And he's in control, and he has the stars uh, in his right hand, meaning all authority belongs to him. And he is standing among the lampstands, the lampstands, the golden lampstands, which represent the seven churches in western Turkey. And because the number seven is also a symbolic number, we are to understand that the message to those seven churches then is really a message also that we need to pay attention to. This church and every church that proclaims Jesus as the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so the very first church that gets a message is the church at Ephesus. And so, um, so I want to read this passage of Scripture and then we're going to talk about the city of Ephesus as it was about 2,000 years ago. And then we're going to talk about the church that gathered there about 2,000 years ago. And then we're going to talk about us. Revelation 2, 1 through 7 says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name. And have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 2, 1 through 7, the word of God. Ephesus, the very first church to whom Jesus speaks in this uh, series of seven churches. Ephesus was the leading city in western Turkey. Uh, it's uh, what is now called western Turkey, or Turkey. It was Asia Minor uh, back in the first century. And Ephesus uh, was to that region, I guess, what Chicago would be to us. In the ancient world, I mean, it was a city of 250,000, which is a rather large population for a city in the ancient world. And it was a harbor town. 
uh, it was a harbor that came up to the coastline, but it was a harbor that had to continually be redredged so that the trade ships could come up so that a trade route could exist. Um, there in Ephesus, uh, there was trade that existed from, from uh, Greece there further on to the west and Athens and, and they would take the ships and, and they would go into that trade route and then it would take them on throughout the east of, of Asia Minor there or what is now Turkey. And then there was a road that went north and went south. And so Ephesus was at the crossroads. It was a very bustling town and it was full of trade, full of activity, full of people and it was a thriving population in a very wealthy area of the Roman Empire. And if you look at the next slide here, you'll see what the marketplace looked like. If you go to Ephesus today, this is what you'll see. You'll see remnants of what their major business district looked like. Uh, and you can see the colonnades that would have uh, uh, kind of flanked the citizens as they walked down the main city streets. Here's another uh, shot of the uh, business district there. Um, uh, again, it was a very busy, very populous area. Uh, let's look at this next slide. Now, this is fascinating because... Because when you think about this, this is what it looks like now, 2,000 years later. Can you imagine how pristine and how affluent and how wonderful it would have looked? This might have been the equivalent of like Michigan Avenue uh, 2,000 years ago. When you go to Israel and you see the archaeological remnants of the culture there, uh, what you will see, especially uh, outside the city of Jerusalem, is you will see a uh, uh, archaeological remains of towns that really weren't that affluent at all whatsoever. I mean, Jesus grew up in Nazareth. It was, it was, it was just, it was a peasant area of Galilee. But when you go to this place here, you're looking at a highly affluent region. And yet, the gospel took hold in this region because people realized that uh, life is more about stuff. And the truth of the gospel permeated that culture. It was, a, it was an affluent culture. It was a commerce-driven culture. It was a culture that uh, had, had a, a very busy trade route for the Roman Empire. But then it was also, Ephesus was also a very religious culture. Um, uh, well, before I go on to the religion, this, this is, uh, that's okay. I'm sorry. Um, about uh, 15 years after Ephesus received this letter, that library was built, okay? Which, you know, would have been as uh, pleasantly received uh, then as our new library is to us now. Just wonderful, you know? And so it was a learned um, uh, community, a community that prized education and, and, and literacy. And again, I mean, if that's what it looks like now, think about what it looked like 2,000 years ago. Uh, it, it, it was just, uh, just a remarkable, remarkable place. That, this is what our library is going to look like 2,000 years from now, by the way. Anyway, so nothing lasts forever. Um, let, let's move on, uh, Laura. And, and now, now, see, it was a religious community. And uh, this was one of the three major temples that existed in the city of Ephesus. That is a temple that was dedicated to the emperor Domitian. Domitian was, was the emperor in charge at the time of the book of Revelation. Now, <laughs> Domitian was worshipped as a god. A lot of emperors, I mean, you know, they kind of people, they, they, they waited until after the emperor actually died to worship them as a god. Domitian thought it was a good idea to worship him while he was alive, you know? And so, um, 
humble man. But uh, there's his statue, and, uh, and if you go to the next slide, you'll see that's what remains of Domitian's temple. And uh, there was another emperor uh, named Hadrian who also had a uh, temple. But the crown jewel of them all in Ephesus was the temple of Artemis. This was a beauty. Uh, this was 425 feet long by 225 feet wide, and it was covered. So, I mean, just think about that. 2,000 years ago, a, a, um, a, an area the size of a football field having this structure on it in that technology back then, you've got about 127 pure marble uh, columns. And then uh, inside, you've got about 36-ish uh, columns that are encrusted with jewels and rubies. And uh, it was a temple dedicated to the Greek goddess Artemis, who was a, a fertility goddess and uh, the, uh, a hunter goddess. And there was uh, kind of a soft porn statue of her inside that temple. And inside that temple were also featured a, a, a shrine tree, uh, a shrine tree. And the law allowed for a criminal who was on the run to seek asylum in that temple. They could go into the temple, seek asylum, and the law couldn't touch him. You know, the sheriff and the deputies would just kind of give up and then go away. And then the criminal would then escape to continue their crime spree. That's just kind of the way that was. That was the culture. And it employed thousands of priests and priestesses, and so that kind of helped with the economy and everything. And it was in that culture that the church at Ephesus was birthed around 56, 57 A.D. The apostle Paul and a husband and wife team, Priscilla and Aquila, and Apollos came, and a thriving church was built in, in that culture. And Paul started preaching in a synagogue, and he'd preach the word and then get run out of the synagogue. And he went over to the hall of Tyrannus, where for three years he reasoned and preached the gospel, and that church uh, just grew, and it flourished. And several New Testament letters more or less orbit around the church at Ephesus. I'm thinking, of course, the book of Acts. I'm thinking of the book of Ephesians. I'm also thinking of, of the book of Colossians. Most likely, the church at Ephesus would have read the letter to the Colossians and vice versa. And then I'm also thinking of 1 Timothy, where Paul says to Timothy, I want you to stay in Ephesus so that you command certain teachers not to teach false doctrines, all right? And then 1 John was written in that area. So several New Testament letters orbit around this church at Ephesus. And so when Jesus Christ writes this letter, it's about 40 years later. Our church was started, Windsor Road was started in around 1973. So this church has some staying power. And when they gather for worship, now there's a second and third generation presence, you see? There's parents and kids, there's grandkids, and we're just kind of all together. And it's been about 40 years now, and Jesus says, I know what's going on. I know, and he compliments them. He encourages them. He encourages them because you've got, you are right on in, in just several strengths. 
He says, I know your deeds. I know your hard work. I, you, you all have the right work ethic. You all know that, that the health of a church family, you can't just be a Sunday spectator that just comes and sits and listens and then gets up and leaves and punch in, punch out, clock in, clock out, we're done. Let's get on to the next thing and we'll come back next Sunday. That's not the dynamics of a healthy church family. The healthy church family is a church family where where the brothers and sisters in the community are serving and working and meeting needs. And that's what's going on here. And Jesus says, that has not escaped my notice. I know what's going on. I know you have the right industry. And then Jesus says, you have the right kind of endurance. You have staying power. You, you are winning the Iron Man competition contest among the churches. You've been faithful. You've been persevering in the midst of a hostile culture. There was a slide that I forgot, didn't I, Laura? It was the theater. It was the theater in Ephesus. Can we show that? That was the theater where 25,000 Ephesians gathered and started chanting at the top of their lungs, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And a riot nearly broke out because the Apostle Paul was preaching the gospel. And Paul... <laughs> I mean, this guy had guts. He wanted to march right in that theater and tell all these angry people who wanted to dismember him about Jesus. And the official said, not today. <laughs> not, don't do that, okay? Uh, don't do that. And, and, and you can go to that theater right there. And that church existed in a hostile environment. But they endured. They persevered. They had staying power. And Jesus says, you're right on. Right industry, right endurance. And then Jesus says, you've got, you've got, you are, you are right on truth. Right on doctrine. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not and have found them false. Oh yeah. The Ephesian believers and the Ephesian leaders and the Ephesian elders, whenever someone got up to speak, I mean their truth detection radar went on. And they, they're just listening. And they're, they are listening to what's being taught and they can, they can appreciate the passion of the speaker they can appreciate the charisma of the teacher, but they're comparing all that's being said with the truth of the gospel, and they're not afraid to raise their hand up and say, hey, that's not in line with the truth of the gospel. That's not, no, that doesn't square with Jesus. And they were not afraid to confront false teaching. In fact, Jesus compliments them when he says, you have this in your favor, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans. Nico, Nike, Nike, victory. Laetans, Laos, victory over the people, overcomer of the people. It was a cult. And it was a cult that was involved in immorality and idol worship. In short, they were compromisers. And they dabbled with Artemis and Domitian 
and the other temples. And the elders said, no, we're not going to dabble. And, uh, and you're not going to teach here if you're going to dabble. See, that's a rare thing, isn't it, in a church? To confront the occasional nut jobs that make their way into the church community and uh, graciously but firmly say, this is the truth, and this is, and let, we're going to keep it on the truth track, okay? And, and it takes, it takes a, a firm leadership that is right on industry and right on endurance and right on doctrinal purity to confront the occasional unruly that make their way into a place like this. Jesus says, you're right on. You're right on. You have persevered. You have endured hardships for my name. And you have not grown weary. You're right. You know, it's important to be right. It is. It's, impor it's important to have the right kind of industry where we realize that we are servants and workers for Jesus. And it's important to, to have the right kind of enduring spirit so that we're not just here and uh, flash and, and, and we're, we're here for the long haul. We want to commit ourselves to a long obedience to the same direction. And it's important to stay right on the truth track. It's important. And, and, and our church is healthy when that happens. Right industry, right endurance, right doctrine. It's important to be right. Amen? But it's not enough to be right. It's not. It's not enough to be right. Anybody who's been married for any amount of time knows that. <laughs> it's not enough to be right. <laughs> amen. <laughs> yeah, amen. Yeah. Verse 4 says, yet I hold this against you. It's not enough to be right. You have forsaken your first love. And he's not talking about an old flame. Uh, uh, let me put it this way. You have abandoned the love you had at first. That's what verse 4 means. You've abandoned, you know, at first, at first, the Ephesians were bubbling over with love that led to the kind of service and activity and ministry. At first, the Ephesians had the kind of love in their hearts that, that allowed them to withstand the hostile stress and pressure that others would just buckle beneath. At first, the, the Ephesians just so loved God and so loved God's truth that they were just committed to that. They were committed at first. At first, but, but over time, a subtle but serious erosion of love had begun to occur in their hearts. And just as the city of Ephesus that had a harbor, and that harbor needed to be redredged over and over again because the deposits of silt and sand and gravel could come in and obstruct the way of trade and distribution, over and over, over time, a subtle but serious erosion had occurred, and sentiment and gravel and grit and gunk had begun to build up layer by layer in the harbor of the Ephesians' hearts. And their hearts began to get 
crusty because you see when you're dealing with people minister Jesus said that I have not I have not come to to minister to the healthy I've come to minister to the sick and so you know ministry just by its definition is about helping hurting people who have gunk and silt and sand and sediment and deposit and when you get involved in those lives guess what some of that just very well may splash on you and the harbor of your heart just needs to be redredged over and over again so that your heart can beat fresh the love of God so that his love and his grace can flow through you so that your life can be a trade route, a distribution point for God's grace and God's mercy and God's kindness. And, and something happened. Something happened in that Ephesian church. And Jesus, you see, we wouldn't have, I bet we wouldn't have even noticed it. But Jesus says, I know what's going on because I stand among the churches and I can see what's happening. You're busy in your service and you're patient in your suffering and you're orthodox in your beliefs. You are right, but it's not enough to be right. It's not. Do you hear what Jesus is saying to them and to us? Don't miss it. Jesus Christ is just as concerned about the quality of love in your heart as he is the quantity of ministry coming out of your life. He's concerned about the, the level of love in your heart. And, and, and you know why, don't you? I mean, see, the answer to that question just strikes at the cord of what Christianity is all about. Because when you, when you get what Christianity is, you understand that at its root, at its core, in its essence, Christianity is faith expressing itself in love. That's it. Faith expressing itself in love. That's what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Christianity is a love-driven faith. It's not a fear-driven faith. It's not a shame-driven faith. It's not a guilt-driven faith. It's not an ego-driven faith. It's not a pleasure-driven faith. It's a love-driven faith. And the Ephesians had tasted this kind of love, and that's why they were such vibrant servants, because they really got what Paul said in Ephesians 4, 16, from him the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. The Ephesians had tasted the love of God in a way that the worldview of Domitian and Artemis and any other idol-worshiping temple could not deliver because you didn't go to the temple of Artemis because Artemis loved you. Nor did you go to Domitian. You did it out of fear. You did it because you were going to bribe them. That you were going to bribe them, maybe they'd throw down a blessing. But no, the gospel came to this community. A gospel which said, Ephesians 2, 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, they had never met any kind of God like that. Made us alive in Christ when we were dead. It's by grace you have been saved. Man, they tasted that, and then they began to gulp that. And that's why Paul says in Ephesians, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, 
may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Are you getting the fullness saturation theme here? These people are just soaked in love. And so it changed their lives and it made them serve and endure. And it made them hunger for truth in a way that they just no one ever, ever could offer them ever. And once you taste that love, you want it and you want to protect it and you want to keep it and you want to fight for it. Christianity is a faith fueled by love. And so when Jesus sees us leaving that kind of love, and they left it, they didn't forget it, and they didn't lose it, and they didn't misplace it. They left it. They'd abandoned it. When Jesus sees us losing that kind of love, he knows what's good. He knows what's coming next. He knows. He knows that in a short amount of time, that which was spontaneous, unrehearsed acts of service over a long period of time because you're committed to truth, that kind of thing is just going to give way to routine and rote religious deeds where you just come up and show up and sing up and then you just leave and it just becomes, instead of a serving, enduring, truth-driven faith, it becomes a grinding faith, a grinding faith. You say, Randy, how do you know? Because I'm a minister, that's how I know. And it's something that I've got to fight for in my heart. Just sometimes it feels like on a daily basis. I've got to have the harbor of my heart redredged. I've got to have that harbor redredged. Or it'll get numb. Um, our small group this week uh, was talking about what we're going to do in this semester in our studies. And we talked about studying a, a great book. It's written by a pastor named Tim Keller. It's called The Prodigal God. It's about the parable of the lost son. And when you read that parable, you realize that that father didn't have just one lost son. He had two. One just happened to get lost in Vegas, and the other got lost at home, the elder brother. And I want you to listen to this quote from Tim Keller's book. He says, nearly everyone defines sin as breaking a list of rules. Jesus, though, shows us that a man, and, and in this case a church, Ephesus, a man who has violated virtually nothing on the list of moral misbehaviors can be every bit as spiritually lost as the most profligate immoral person. And why? Because sin is not just breaking the rules. It is putting yourself in the place of God as Savior, Lord, and Judge, just as each son sought to displace the authority of the Father in his own life. And that's what the church at Ephesus has done. I mean, they, they had displaced, they had, they had left God's love, and it had just become a bureaucratic 501c3. Yeah. And what Jesus is telling this church is simple. 
He says, my light will not shine where my love does not burn. My light's not going to shine if my love's not burning. And if love isn't burning, something else is. And that something else needs to, needs to be taken out. And you need to go back to my love. And that's why Jesus says, remember, remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. You, remember, you can fix this. This can be fixed. And, and here's how it needs to be fixed. And I want to be very clear. I want to be very clear. I don't have three tips to reignite. I don't have that. That's not on your outline. If you got that outline, it's the wrong outline. I don't have three tips, three suggestions, three steps. Three, I don't have that. I have, there's one. There's, there's really two. Jesus says, remember and repent. Remember and repent. Remember what? Re Again, let's go back to Keller. Listen to this quote. How can the inner workings of the heart be changed from a dynamic of fear and anger to that of love, joy, and grace? Here is how, church family, you need to be moved by the sight of what it costs to bring you home. Are you? Have you forgotten? Have you forgotten what it costs to bring you home? We worship the God who in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 says, He loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood, and He has made us to be a kingdom and priests. One race in Jesus Christ, one family, one nation, one kingdom. Are you moved by that? You need to be. You need to be moved by the sight of what it costs to bring you home. Just go to the cross there. I mean, do you understand now why we take communion every week? Why Jesus left communion for his church every week? Do you understand that? Have you let that become rote? Every week we need to be moved by the sight of what it cost to bring you home. Only, only with Jesus' love can we shine Jesus' light. His light will not shine where his love does not burn. Remember and repent. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Yeah. Jesus says to that church then and to this church now, if you don't repent, if you don't go back to the cross, if you don't redredge the harbor of your heart, the city of Ephesus was constantly fighting for its life because that harbor had to be redredged. And if you do not redredge the harbor of your heart, Jesus says, I'm gonna come and it's lights out. That's it. You see, the privilege of shining the light of Christ is just that. It's a privilege. It's a privilege. It's a privilege to teach, a privilege to worship, a privilege to gather, a privilege to serve. It's a privilege. And the visibility and the impact that we have as a church community on our community is just that. It's a privilege. And it's a privilege that I need to understand and maintain and protect as senior minister of this church. And it's a privilege that our elders need to as well. John Duchesne, 
John Peisker, Kevin Jackson, Eric Decker, Dan Pack. And when we don't lead out of love, you pay for it. And when you don't lead out of love in your respective ministries, somebody else has to pay the freight. And Jesus says, if you don't redredge the harbor of your heart, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to take your light away and I'm going to remove your influence and I'll relocate it someplace else because, and you know, you know this makes sense, no church is better than a loveless church. No church is better than a loveless church. So now it's decision time. What are you going to do? Jesus says in verse 7, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That, that phrase which we'll read every week here, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus said that in the Gospels. It's a reference to the idols who looked like they had ears and looked like they had eyes, but they were just pieces of rock. Jesus says, are you, are you a real person or are you just a rock? Listen up, pay attention. Someone, someone noted that God has not equipped us with ear lids. You got eyelids, all right. We're not equipped with ear lids. So you pay attention. And to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life. Now, I'm not talking about some silly shrine tree in the temple of Artemis where a criminal can come and seek asylum and then go out and do what they want to do. I'm talking about someone who remembers and repents and goes to the cross. And through the cross, they will eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It's not enough to be right. You've got to love. And the light of Christ shines by the love of Christ. So, let's go to the cross. Josh and the worship team is going to come up and we're going to we're going to recenter on Jesus. And then we're going to receive communion. Don't let it be rote. Don't let it be rote. Go to the cross and look into the face of love itself. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for your tender mercy and your grace and your power. Thank you that it is your love that burns your light so brightly here. And may we be committed to that. May we never, ever forget what it costs to bring us home. And may we always be moved by that. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.